to start with uh, talking about a question. One of the things I learned in seminary, probably the, the chief, most important thing I learned, is that when we look at God's Word, it's real important that we understand exactly what the Word means in the original context. And I think it's readily apparent that, especially just starting out reading the Bible, sometimes we pull things directly into our own context instead. We'll read something and says, well, this is what this word means to me, therefore that's the truth. We stop there. And we were talking about this in Sunday school class this morning, is really when you're understanding God's word, if you want the full impact of God's word, you have to understand it in the original context of which it was given. And if you try to pull it into your own context, it kind of throws you off key, and also it doesn't give the word full authority in your life to work to change us. Because that's how we're changed is by understanding God's Word and understanding it thoroughly and correctly. And the better we can understand it in the original context, the more impact it has in our life. So last week after we discussed uh, 1 John, a sister came up and she says, I don't really understand what this word means. And actually it's a very good question because she was talking about the word world in this this thing. And um, John uses the word world probably more than any other author in the Bible. Um, in this first epistle, he uses the word world 19 times. And the word is kind of unusual in that it has different meanings. That's in itself isn't that unusual, I guess. But the Greek word world kind of has different meanings. It could mean like uh, the creation. It can mean a world system, a governmental system. It can mean... Um, a bunch of people, a multitude of people who don't know the Lord, or maybe a group of people that do know the Lord. Um, So it has different contexts. If you think about it, an English word of this word world is kind of the same way, right? We can talk about like Wayne's world, you know, it just means like a group, this is what it means to him. And it's a valid interpretation of the word. Or it could mean a creation or of, of the world system. You know, and it kind of, the one thing that's unusual about this word world is that it actually, the Greek and the English have a very similar context about the word. It can be used different ways. But because of that, when you read it in English, you have to understand how it's being used. And in this case, um, I think it's used a, a few different ways. Now, the question in, from last week was on 1 John 2, verse 2. And it says, He Himself, Jesus, is a propitiation for our sins. What Jesus did on the cross, in other words, uh, satisfies God's wrath. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Now, in this use here, I think John is talking about general humanity. This is uh, the group of people of the world that God loves, and this is why he did that. And, and keep in mind that the Bible is a demonstration of God's love. So when God says, I did this for the entire world, it generates the, his generosity towards us in Christ Jesus. You know? But if we put this in context, if we look a little bit farther forward in 1 John 4, 13-15, it kind of says the same thing but it explains it a little bit better. Starting with verse 13, it says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. So he's talking about us. 
we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And in verse 15 it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And I made a statement last year that whether people choose to follow Christ or not is another story. And in verse 15, that word whoever is a huge whoever. You know, because it takes God to intervene in our lives to bring us to life in Christ Jesus. We can't do that ourselves. It's something God does for it. So generally speaking, yes, God died for the entire world, but specifically, he also uh, applies that to our life when we come to him in faith. And he brings us into new life through the blood of Christ and his spirit. I like one of the songs that was just sung. It talked about that when the night holds on, he holds us. Man, that is powerful. Because that, that talks about a conflict within us between this, this world system and the, the, the sinful nature that we have that's not quite done yet and, and the power of God through what God has done on the cross, the blood of Christ, and the Holy Spirit working within our heart to hold us firm to that foundation which is Christ. And we have this conflict going on within us. Which brings us to our first point is the love of the will of God is contrary to the love of the world. Now, just also to remind you of, of our format, we have the note sheet that's in your bulletin there if you want to pull that out and kind of go through that. We have the sections of Scripture we're talking about in the main point. And then I've underlined the sections of that scripture that we're going to pull from, and we're going to use other scripture to explain it as we go through it. So that's generally the format. Let's go ahead and pray before we get started into that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your mercy upon us, and thank you for your word and helping us to understand what it truly means not just to us, but in the way it was really written, and that have that have a full authority and impact on our lives. So then it can have true meaning to us and change us into what you would have us to be. And this whole, whole issue of, of where we're at right now in this world is all about bringing you glory. It's about your goodness reaching out to sinful man. And we need your help. There's no way we can navigate around this. We need you. And you're the one who works in our hearts. You're the one who teaches us. You're the one who brings us into your presence that we may worship you. Thank you for your great love. And thank you for bringing this understanding to our hearts and minds that we may truly worship you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our first point is the love of the will of God is contrary to the love of the world. And this is a, a huge contrast, isn't it, that John brings out. And John starts by saying, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Now, originally I said the word world was used as general humanity, and now he's using it differently. Now let, let's look at how the context, how the context changes it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. See how the context changes the meaning of that word? 
It's different, and it does have a, a genuine range of meaning. The world or the things of the world comes from those who desire the deceptions of the devil, which are lust, covetousness, and pride. The world system, in this sense, is made of people who are following Satan and feeding their sinful nature. They are, in essence, following deceit and make up the world system. And it's, all, it's where we all come from. We come from the world, and God brings us into his marvelous light that we can walk by his ways and not our own. In 1 John 5.19, it says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The motivation is about the love of the Father or the love of the world system that affects us. Love draws us in one direction or the other. And we are going in the opposite direction of everybody else, if you haven't noticed. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about a ship that has the, the sail full with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have a rudder to direct that ship, which is Christ in the Word of God. I mean, that is us. We are being motivated by God to go the opposite direction of the world. And even our flesh would want us to be contrary to that. But God brings us to himself. And we can see this clearly in the temptation of Adam and Eve, how they were drawn astray. In Genesis 3, 1 through 6, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said. He puts question into her mind. Indeed has God said. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. From the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Now there's the lie. There is the lie. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, you will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, and he ate with her. It's interesting that that Eve actually quotes back exactly what God said, except she adds to it. She says, you should, I'm not even going to touch it or I will die. And that's something probably Adam told her, I guess. I don't know, it doesn't really say but originally said, God just don't eat from, or God told them, don't eat from that tree. And she says, I'm not even going to touch it or I will die. So she knew what the command of God was. Clearly it was stated. And the problem is, is Satan told her a lie. He says, you're not going to die. Well, when she ate of the fruit of the tree, she did die. She was separated from God. And that caused sin that was passed down to us. And the temptation there says, you will be like God. He told her a lie. You're not going to die. And if you do take it, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. Well, she knew good. She didn't know evil. And when she took that, she learned. Some say that she didn't know what she was doing because she was being deceived. Well, she knew what she was doing. She believed the lie that she would not die. It's the same as everyone who is apart from Christ. It's rebellion against God. 
They want to be like God to call their own shots. That's the temptation. Lust, covetousness, and pride are the action or distraction for the rebellion. It's like the cheese in the trap that draws us in. But don't be deceived. All sin is idolatry against God. People end up destroying their lives and others, trying to satisfy themselves by sin. And we see that all around us, don't we, in the world. People are destroying themselves, running away from God, trying to satisfy themselves, and they're never satisfied. It's like a dog chasing its tail. You know, it's totally futile. Sin promises life's fulfillment, but in the end delivers death every time. You know, and and people are just blind to it. It's really sad. And what if Jesus would have sold out the devil, just say because of covetousness? Let's look, let's consider that for a minute. In Matthew 4, 8 through 10, when Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, he was tempted with the same temptations that Adam and Eve were, basically. And this is what the devil said. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I want you to notice the singularity of Jesus' purpose. Jesus obeying his Father is because of his love. Jesus didn't make it about himself. He made it about His Father's will. Jesus is going to get the kingdoms of the world in His Father's time. He's going to inherit the whole earth and a new earth. But He's going to do it in God's way, not in Satan's way. The shortcut the devil proposed would have left out our salvation. It would have foregone the cross and not demonstrated God's great love, which is ultimately stealing God's glory. And worst of all, it's making Jesus someone who's he, who he's not. Every time the people came to make Jesus king was a reintroduction of the same temptation. And even his disciples expected Jesus to set up his kingdom here on earth and overturn the Romans. This temptation was always before Jesus, and he, and he always did things his Father's way. You know, this is Jesus' response to his Father's will in Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he, it says in here that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, that word a slave, a slave to God's will. He was do what his father expected him to do, and only that, even if it meant going to the cross. And Jesus, who is God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now think about this compared to what Eve did. She took the apple and says, yeah, I want to be like God. Well, Jesus, he says, I am God. And to demonstrate my Father's great love, I'm going to do what my Father told me to do. 
What do you think what happened if Eve would have went to God and said, hey, you know, the snake told me to eat this apple over here and you told me not to do it. Uh, what do you think about that? All she had to do is take it to God. When we work our lives out before God, we're kind of in the same situation sometimes, aren't we? The devil will tell us one thing and we know it's not right. But what are you going to do about it? Take it to God. Let him deal with it. No, I'll do whatever you want, Lord. Just tell me what you want me to do. This is what the temptation is, and I'm having a hard time here. And we all have these temptations in our lives that we need to deal with. And to try to get over it without God's help is futile. We need God's help. And God knows that. Eve chose sin so she could be like God, and it's based on pride. And pride is Satan's own fall as well. And Jesus, God, emptied himself so he could be obedient to his Father. The temptation of Christ. You know, think about it. The things that he was tempted by were the same as what Adam and Eve faced. Following Satan would have made him disobedient to his Father, his Father's will, avoiding the cross and sending us to hell. And Jesus would be a sinner like the rest of us. You know, I think that we need to thank Jesus for his obedience. Think about that. Let that sink in. Jesus was obedient to his Father's will. Let's just pray for a second. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you Father, for sending your Son, Jesus. And we thank him for his obedience. Because if he wasn't obedient to you, we would have no hope. We would have nothing. But because He is obedient to you and has always been obedient to you and is of you, we have hope because of Him. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience. And help us to be like you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We're not done yet. <laughs> I just want to pray. No, we are expected to walk in obedience just as Jesus walked because he abides with us. You know, and, and there's all kinds of deviations we have. Here's another example. The love of money. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and, and some by it longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money is tied to pride because money makes you self-sufficient before God. And we end up trusting money instead of God. You know, Brother Bill brought up the, the contrast between the church of Laodicea and the church of Smyrna a few weeks ago. And, and those two churches were both prosperous societies. And what would cause Smyrna to be poor materially? Well, I think it's because they were persecuted. They were in tribulation. They were going to jail for Jesus. And I would say probably the government confiscated their goods. They didn't have money because they were in tribulation. The others, on the other hand, Laodicea thought they had no need because they had money. Money was their problem because they put it first in the place of God, which is idolatry. God was going to spew them out of their mouth because they're not loving or serving Him. And it's not a small thing. This is idolatry before God, to put money first before God. 
You know, in, in Martin Luther's time, some people would even try to buy their way into heaven through religion and indulgences. And the church was all into it. Yeah, come on, give us some money. And you're clear, you can go ahead and indulge in those sinful natures. Just, just pay up. They were making money. They built big cathedrals. But the money they collected because people were walking in sin. That's pretty backwards. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You know, even though we have money, we don't have to love money. Uh, I would go to, rather go to the Lord poor and admit my lack and need, and frankly, I do it all the time. You know, I am a needy person. We all are, if we're going to be real about it. We all need things from God. We, we're in great debt to Him. The Beatitudes in Luke 6, 20-23 demonstrate this. And Jesus says, In turning His gaze towards His disciples, He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And He's talking to us. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. We are poor in spirit, and God gives us His Spirit. We hunger for righteousness and weep because of sin, and God forgives us and gives us His righteousness instead. We are persecuted for the name of Christ, and Jesus rewards us for holding steadfast. And Jesus is coming again and bringing His reward with Him. This is our attitude that we need to be before God. Which brings us to our second point, that the world is passing away because Christ is returning to make it new. And God is starting this new creation with you. In 1 John 2, 18-24, He says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard it said, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrist have appeared. From this we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because there is no lie of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and the Father. John talks about Antichrist in a plural way. And I think in our society it manifests itself in cults. But there they had deviation of doctrine, and it's always about Jesus. 
It's always about lies about Jesus or falling faulty doctrine that leads people away from Christ. And think about this in the temptation of Christ. The devil couldn't change Jesus. Jesus stayed true to his Father's will, and he is the Word of God. So now he comes and attacks doctrine. So we believe things that are untrue about Christ, and it leads us away from the truth. In verse 22, the devil is always trying to create something new that makes Jesus into something that he's not. That is why we have so many cults. Other religions don't have cults, if you think about it. I don't think so anyways. And the reason why is those other religions already lead people away from Jesus. Kind of makes sense. If you want to discuss a point with a cult member, make it about Jesus. Because probably that's the point of deviation that matters. You know who he is. In verse 18, being the last hour should affect us. We are expecting the return of Christ at any time. And frankly, the church has been expecting the return of Jesus ever since there has been a church. And it's a good thing. If you're expecting Jesus to come back this afternoon, then you're probably going to be motivated to do the right thing. And the fact of the matter is, we could stand before Jesus at any time. Whether he comes back this afternoon, or you know, hopefully this wouldn't happen, but maybe you get hit by a truck or something, who knows? You know, tomorrow is not guaranteed to any man. So we want to make sure that we have things right with Jesus and are doing what he wants us to do. In Matthew 25, uh, Jesus gave us the parable of the ten virgins. And the lamps that they're to keep trimmed and full of oil is the abiding presence of God in our hearts and lives. And, and some people, pe- sometimes people are indifferent to this, which I don't, I, don't, I don't really get. I don't understand. In verse 19, John talks about people who stop coming. And maybe for us, it might be, they might be going somewhere else. Or if Christ is not important... They're not in Christ. And in the time this was written, they probably didn't have a church on every street corner like we have here. You know, we have people coming in, visiting here, and then they might go somewhere else, and that's fine. But in that time, there's probably just one church there. So if someone wasn't coming to church anymore, it was a big deal. They aren't going to church, period. A little different than the way it is now. Christian discipleship is an endurance race. Jesus said that many would fall away, especially when persecution arises. Sometimes people fall because of indifference. And I just don't, again, I don't understand how you can be indifferent about Jesus. In John 6, there was a multitude who fell away. And this is the people who are fed when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and they fed the 5,000. And these were people who wanted to have their bellies full. And they wanted signs from Jesus. They were following him for the wrong reasons. And Jesus makes a number of statements that they just didn't understand. He said, Believe in him whom he has sent, and all the Father gives me will come to me. He said, I am the bread of life, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He said, For the life of the world is my flesh, and he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. And all these statements that he made that brought out the contrast that, hey, you guys are following the wrong thing. You need to follow me instead. 
And all the statements they couldn't accept was based on describing John 6.29, which says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him and Him and in him whom he has sent. And the Father drawing an individual to that purpose. That's the thing they couldn't get. You know, Peter, right after that, makes a statement of faith after the multitude fell away. And Jesus basically asked Peter, what, are you going to fall away too? And Peter says, you know, he said, he answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, do you think Peter understood everything that Jesus said to the multitude and said to him about Jesus being the bread of life? Do you think he really understood that? I I don't think he did, because they were still looking for Jesus to set up his throne and overturn the Romans until Pentecost. Then they finally understood. But there's one thing that that Peter did understand. Peter understood that he was drawn to Christ by God and believed that Jesus spoke the truth even if he didn't understand everything. And he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And he was firmly established on that one point. It's not that he understood everything. I mean, who, who really has this all figured out yet? Do we? No, but we understand who Jesus is. In Hebrews 3.14 it says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And that one statement about who Jesus is, you know, this is who Jesus is. Believe in Him whom He has sent. Believing in Jesus. That's the point. In 1 Corinthians 13.12 it says that we don't really have it all figured out yet, but we have this figured out about Jesus. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as it been fully known. When we see Jesus, we're going to have a full revelation of what's going on. But right now, we just know that by faith we need to follow Christ and do what's right and pray, because we need His help. Jesus calls us into this abiding covenant and relationship with Him. In Hebrews 3.1 it says, Therefore, holy brethren, you're partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus calls us into this abiding covenant relationship with him. And this, in verse 20 of John there, it says, This is the source of our faith, this anointing from the Holy One, which reveals the truth in Scripture. That's the one thing we need to hold fast to. And in verse 24, the act of abiding in truth brings us to the Son and the Father through the Holy Spirit. The third point. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and abiding in Him brings us all three of those through Christ. And 1 John 2, 25-29 says, This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Now, little children, abide in Him. Jesus so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. 
If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. This word abide is used many, many times in the Bible. But it means to stay, remain, continue, to endure, to stay with Jesus no matter what. And I love the fact that Jesus is with us. In Matthew 1.23 it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And so it refers to Isaiah 7.14. And God being with us helps us to understand. We can't understand the truth apart from God. He's the one who brings us the understanding. In John 14, 25-26, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. I have heard it said that this only applies to the apostles because they were special. They were special because they received the revelation from God and God bring thought things that he had done to their remembrance so they could write it down. And that was their job. And the point is, I think we don't need to add to Scripture. They did write the Scripture, and then John closed the canon of Scripture in Revelation 22, 18-19. John wrote, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So I think clearly, um, they're not talking about the Holy Spirit bringing us something that is apart from Scripture. The whole idea of people having prophecies from God, that they come up with ridiculous statements about things. Um, they have to have a serious warning about that because John gave it to them in Revelation. Or, or if I, or someone else teaches the Scripture and they're inaccurate, again, that is adding to or taking away from what Scripture, scripture actually says. And that has a harsh um, warning against it. So we have to be accountable to one another and keep each other on track. But I think John's point in 1 John 2.27 is that the Holy Spirit leads us in truth of Scripture. If someone deviates from Scripture, adds to or takes away from these words, we should be aware of it. We also need to hold each other accountable to the truth. And there's examples of Paul and, and Timothy. In 1 Corinthians 14.17, Paul says, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in the church. And again he says, uh, To my Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Paul was keeping Timothy there in Ephesus so that that church could be uh, corrected and brought back into the truth. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will teach others also. So his anointing teaches you about all things, and it is true. And teachers are important. Teaching and preaching are spiritual gifts that, that help in the development of the disciple. 
However, if someone comes up with something different than Scripture, especially concerning who Jesus is, um, then you know the truth, because the truth abides in you. And that's his point. And this truth brings us confidence. In verse 28, the abiding love of God brings confidence. We have confidence because the sound doctrine and the abiding Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth. And the Holy Spirit confirms in our heart and minds of who we are in Christ. Confidence comes from exercising faith and obediently following Christ. And frankly, I love exercising the gift of preaching because I cannot do it apart from Christ. You can't do your spiritual gift by yourself. It's not something God gives you, but it's through Him. It's something He is doing for you. He's the vine and we're the branches, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is the work of God in you, to receive the gift of eternal life. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it's just that simple. Trust Jesus and what he has done on the cross, and he will give you life. Eternal life is a gift that God has given us through faith. We continue to walk with God, we will be sanctified and set apart for His service. And we need, all need to leave stuff behind because you abide with God. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ that enables you to walk with Him. And if we sin, we confess that to God and He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We serve Jesus as He enables to work, being blessed to work for Christ. You are with Christ when at work. And I, it's my prayer that, that God has full impact in our lives, that he is the one who reigns and brings us his truth. Let's pray.